And that's why today is called Palm Sunday. It's the day on which Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, anticipating all that he was going to experience in the next week or so. And uh, as he came to Jerusalem, as he had predicted so many times, what was awaiting him was death, a death that he did not deserve. So today being Palm Sunday is when Christian churches commemorate his final arrival at the city of Jerusalem. This coming Thursday, uh, Christian churches will commemorate either the Last Supper or uh, what is called uh, Holy Thursday or Monday Thursday uh, in Protestant churches. It commemorates the Last Supper, (coughs) Jesus dealing with the apostles just before his death. This coming Friday will be Good Friday, especially in the Catholic churches, where uh, they will remember Jesus' crucifixion and his burial. And then next Sunday, of course, Easter Sunday, uh, churches will commemorate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So this is usually called Holy Week. It's one of the most sacred weeks in uh, Christian churches. And it all pertains to, or it all commemorates or remembers Jesus' final week during his physical life. But all of these things that Jesus went through, it was a very difficult week for him. A lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of agony leading up to his death. Why was it all necessary? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? You know, this symbol that we have on the the wall back there, and a symbol that a lot of people wear around their necks, or on a ring, or whatever the case may be, that cross, what does it symbolize and why was it necessary? Well, it's a very holy symbol for Christians. Uh, It symbolized Jesus' death and how he died, a very painful death of crucifixion. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I'd like to refer to a scripture there. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't deserve to die. You know, all that he went through as far as a trial, uh, interrogations, uh, here he was a a rabbi who was the Messiah, who was the Son of God. Uh, Men were trying to kill him for different reasons, but he didn't deserve to die. Through all of the interrogations and the questioning he went through, they couldn't find anything really wrong that he did. And finally, there were trumped up charges, there were false charges by which he was convicted, but he didn't deserve to die. So you might ask, well, if he's the Messiah, if he's the very son of God who came to earth in human form, why did he have to go through all of this? Well, the answer is found in a a simple verse here in Romans 6, verse 23. And the verse says, for the wages of sin is death. You might say the penalty of sin is death. It wasn't Jesus' sin because he never sinned. Well, whose sin caused Jesus' death? Well, it was our sins. Our sins brought about Jesus' death. We were the ones who deserved to die because of our sins, but Jesus took our place and died as a substitute for us. So the scripture says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. See, it's a very basic concept that at its core, sin is rebellion against God. God, our creator, 
He's the one who gave us life. He's the one who created this earth on which we live. He taught us how to live. And this starts back way at the beginning with the first humans that he created, Adam and Eve. We read the story back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden where God instructed Adam and Eve the right way to live. And it was symbolized by a tree in the garden. He said, you can eat all of the trees, the fruit of all of the trees in the garden, but don't eat of that one particular tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God was teaching them that, listen, I want you to rely on me for what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, and how you should live uh, a life that brings about happiness and joy and prosperity. So he gave them that instruction, and starting with Adam and Eve, they made the wrong decision. They chose to go ahead and eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, <coughs> meaning they wanted to decide for themselves how they should live. <coughs> and you know what? That is a, a problem and a mistake that we still make today. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> In a sense... Being in the Garden of Eden, if you will, we in our lives have made the wrong decision. We've chosen to eat of the tree that God told us not to. We rejected God's revealed uh, truth <coughs> because we wanted to decide for ourselves. We wanted to call the shots in our life how we think we should live. We don't care what God thinks. And that's the decision we have all made in our life from time to time. And that's the decision that so many people in the world continue to make. They don't want anybody telling them how they should live. They want to decide for themselves and usually suffer the consequences for their decision. So sin is rebellion <coughs> excuse me, against God. It's disobedience against God's law. And when we make that decision to disobey God, it separates us from God. We're separated from God, who is the giver of life and the sustainer of life. So you see, in that sense, we have chosen death over life by disobeying God. And we all had come into a point of spiritual death. We were dead in our sins, as the scripture tells us. Now, Jesus said that he is the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So when we sin, we become separated from true life. We become separated from God. And we all know how we feel when we sin. We all know how we feel when we do something that we know is wrong, okay? We lie, we cheat, we steal, we uh, hurt somebody's feelings, or uh, we hurt somebody physically, uh, you know, so many things that we do wrong in our lives from time to time, and we know how we feel. We feel ashamed. We feel bad. We feel like we're a loser. We feel like we can't dare face God <coughs> because he knows what we've done. We can't hide our actions from him. So we have all been cut off from God because of our sins. Let's look now at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. This is a mistake that all people have made. 
we've all brought a death penalty upon ourselves. It says in Romans 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, every last one of us, have sinned. We have rejected God. We have disobeyed God's law. And we have come under a penalty. And the penalty is death, being cut off from God. So this is the situation that the world found itself in. Totally cut off from God because of sin. Now, God didn't necessarily have to do anything about that situation. He could have let us live, live out our life in disobedience, suffering all the penalties because of it, and then eventually just die and be dead forever. But that's not the kind of God that we worship. Our God is a loving God. Our God is a forgiving God. Our God is a merciful God. So he decided to do something about our predicament. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the form of a human being to come down to this earth. He was born about 2,000 years ago in the town of Bethlehem, born in a manger. You know, as we celebrate every December 25th, uh, we commemorate that event and rejoice because God intervened in our world and he chose to do something that he didn't have to do, but he is love and he did it out of his love to help us in our situation. He did it to restore us to a relationship with him, a relationship that had been broken because of our sins. Turn now to Romans chapter 5, a very beautiful passage that explains exactly the meaning of Jesus' life and death. So here we were cut off from God, separated from him because of our sins. And out of his mercy, this is what it says, Romans 5 and verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we were helpless. We couldn't do anything to alleviate our situation. We were cut off from God because of our sins. A death penalty was on us. It was God who took the first step. It says now, verse 9, so Jesus came to this earth, he died on the cross, and what he did was he paid the death penalty that we all owed because of our unrighteousness. And he says here in verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, and what does that mean? Well, when Jesus went to the cross, he died a very painful death, and that death was credited to each and every one of us, credited to us. So we have been justified by his blood. See, we someday were going to face a judge who was going to proclaim us guilty. And there was no way we can avoid it because we did it. You know, if, if we came into a court and we were, came to trial because of our sins, and if the judge said to us, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? 
we had no recourse. <laughs> we know that we did it. The judge knows that we did it because he's God and he saw us do it. God has seen us commit every sin that we have ever committed in our lives. So what could we say? There's nothing we could say except guilty. But now because of Jesus' death on the cross, his death paid the penalty for us. So now Jesus Christ proclaims all of us not guilty. You understand that? Even though you did it, the sentence now comes up on you, not guilty. Not guilty. Even though we know we did it, we have been forgiven. Jesus Christ is our substitute. He paid the penalty for sins which we would have had to pay, the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that it wouldn't have to come on us. He is our substitute. He is our substitute. So as it says here, we have been justified. That means we have been proclaimed not guilty by his blood. So his shed blood that he shed on the cross from all of the wounds that he had, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the spear finally in his side, as his blood flowed out, out of his body, it was by his blood that we have been proclaimed not guilty. Something we don't deserve at all, but it has been credited to us. He goes on to say, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So we're saved already in a sense. But we also shall be saved when judgment time comes around because there is going to be a final judgment. So not only are we saved, we shall be saved. When the time of final judgment comes around and that final verdict is proclaimed on our behalf, not guilty. Verse 10, for if when we were God's enemies, that's what we were when we were in our sins, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So we were not only saved by his death on the cross, but he is alive again. We're going to celebrate that next week. His resurrection, he came back to life, and he lives now forevermore. And his living now, he lives as our high priest, as our intercessor. So you see, our salvation is an ongoing thing. We weren't just saved one time when he died on the cross, but our salvation is ongoing because, you know what? We continue to sin from time to time, don't we? And we need that high priest at the Father's right hand to continue to intercede for us so that no guilt is ever placed upon us. So you see, that has a bearing on how we're to live now. We're to live with the realization that we have been given salvation through Jesus Christ, a salvation we never deserved. We deserve guilty, but he has proclaimed us not guilty because he has become our substitute. He took the guilt upon himself rather than allowing it to be on us. So that's what Christianity is all about. That's what salvation is all about. So now we are to live as different people, aren't we? with the realization of what God has done for us through his grace 
through his kindness and mercy, that should change us as people. We're not allowed to continue to be the old sinner that we used to be. <coughs> A change has to take place. And God will bring about that change for us. The Holy Spirit is helping us daily to make the right decisions. Excuse me. <coughs> so when you become a Christian, when you are saved, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and are baptized, that's a turning point in your life you're not allowed to continue living on the same old way you used to. You are becoming a better person. God is changing you. He's transforming you into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. You stop doing the things that you used to do that were wrong. <coughs> you start doing more and more the things that God wants you to do, the, the things that are right. You're serving other people. You're giving words of encouragement to people. You're uh, praying for people. You're giving. You know, you're generous toward other people. These are some of the changes that God brings about in our lives as Christians. And Jesus Christ continues to be our high priest on a daily basis. So our salvation continues on. And he says, uh, verse 11, Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation means two parties that have been apart that are now brought back together. And that's what Jesus has done for us, something we could never do ourselves. So we rejoice in that. We celebrate that. But we also realize what it had to take for that to be accomplished. You know, often we talk about grace, and God has given us his grace freely, and it's at no charge, no cost, we accept salvation through Jesus Christ freely, but grace isn't free. You know, this week we realize what it cost Jesus Christ in order for us to receive that grace freely. There was a cost to Jesus. What he suffered this week, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, his burial, all that he endured, the pain, the discomfort, the agony, that's what it cost Jesus so that we could have grace given to us freely. So grace is not free. We freely receive it, but there was a cost in giving it. And you see, we remember that too. And every time we take the communion, we're always mindful of Jesus' suffering. You know, there's bread that we take. Jesus says that that represents his body. And there's a fruit of the, the vine that we take, the, the grape juice or the wine. Jesus said that that represents his shed blood. That's all the cost that Jesus went through so that we could have grace, that we could have salvation freely. You know, there's a beautiful story back in the Old Testament that I always like to uh, rehearse this time of the year. It's found in Exodus chapter 12. Turn back there with me if you will. It's a story of Israel coming out of ancient Egypt. We know that Israel was a nation that God chose to be his own. And uh, they found themselves in slavery, in captivity in Egypt. And they had a very hard life there. They labored. A lot of them died there. They suffered. They didn't have much at all. 
But God chose this people, for his reasons, to be a chosen nation. And he was going to rescue them from the slavery that they found themselves in. And he chose a man, a leader by the name of Moses, who uh, he sent to eventually lead them out of slavery. And Moses had to go and confront the leader of Egypt, who was the Pharaoh at the time. And uh, God sent Moses with a message of release, a message of salvation, that he wanted uh, the Pharaoh to let those people go, to just turn them loose. And we're talking about millions of people at this time. Pharaoh didn't want to let them loose because they were a good workforce, a labor force for him. And uh, God had to motivate the Pharaoh to release these people. And... uh, He eventually sent plagues against the land of Egypt, different types of plagues to just bother the people and to trouble them so that finally they would want to release these people. It was like a curse over them. So God sent plagues one after the other, along with Moses and a message to release the people. But Pharaoh was very stubborn and very stiff-necked, and He didn't want to let him go. So God finally sent the final plague, which was going to be the death of the firstborn. And that kind of represented this whole concept of sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. So in a type here, this penalty was going to come over the whole land of Egypt. And the firstborn of every family was going to die. The death angel was going to go through the land. And through a miracle... God was going to produce this plague on the land of Egypt, but God was going to protect his own people. Israel would be protected. Even though the firstborn in every house was going to die, the firstborn of the Israelites would not die because God would protect them. And it says here in uh, Exodus 12, verse 5, he told the Israelites the night that this death angel was going to come, that they should all select a lamb. Each family should select a lamb. He says, the animals you choose must be year-old males, or it can also be translated firstborn males, without defect. So in order to be saved through this plague, each family was to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, a firstborn lamb. It says, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Verse 7, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. So he tells them all how to, to, to kill this lamb and to take the blood and to put it on the doorpost of, of where they enter the house and on the side posts. In verse 12, that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you, When I strike Egypt. So he told them that this is something that you should continue to celebrate even after this event is is over, is past. And sure enough, the Israelites killed the lamb, the lamb without any blemish. It was a perfect lamb. It didn't have a broken leg or it didn't limp or it didn't have a crooked ear or spots all over it. 
It was a, 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 a lamb without blemish and a, a firstborn lamb. So they did this, and sure enough, that night, the death angel came through Egypt and killed the firstborn of every family. But the families of the Israelites were protected because they had this blood on their doorposts. The death angel saw that blood, and it passed over the house, and no death came to that house. Well, you know, that was important symbolism for later on because it symbolized Jesus Christ the firstborn son of God, who was without blemish, who came and offered up his life on the cross. And you see, when we come to recognize Jesus as our Savior, when we accept him as our, uh, our Lord and King, when we're baptized and make that decision, the Bible says that his blood is sprinkled over us. We're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ just as the homes were in uh, ancient Egypt, the homes of the Israelites. And just as the death angel, when he saw that blood on the doorposts, he passed over the house. Death did not come to that house. So likewise today, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, and the death penalty passes over us. We're protected just as the Israelites were in ancient Egypt, protected from the death penalty or from the death angel, we are protected from the death penalty because the blood of Jesus Christ is sprinkled on us. You know, it's a beautiful analogy. Turn with me to uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus? He said something very interesting and kind of out of the blue. But when John the Baptist first saw Jesus Christ, it says in John chapter 1 and verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was inspired by God because John the Baptist couldn't have come up with that thought. What John the Baptist was saying here is, this is the lamb. The lamb all the way back in ancient Egypt that protected the Israelites from the death angel. This is the same lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. He is going to be the substitute for the sins of everyone in the whole world. All they have to do is acknowledge him and who he is and what he's going to do, and they will be passed over. He will substitute for the death penalty that they all deserve. So you see, that's what Jesus has done for us. We didn't live back in ancient Egypt. We weren't part of the old Israelite nation. We weren't even there when Jesus Christ walked the earth. But we understand, God has given us understanding to know that this man, by what happened to him, by what he endured for us on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Not only the sins of the whole world, but your sins and my sins individually. And that's what it means to be saved. You come to the point where you realize you are a sinner, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but you've got to humble yourself and admit that, yeah, you are a sinner 
you have disobeyed God, you've brought a death penalty upon yourselves, and you need help. You don't have to choose help. You can remain in your sins and be separated from God forever, or you could choose to do something about it. And there's only one thing that you can do to help your situation, and that is to choose this man, this one, this Son of God as your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's something you've got to say to God. You've got to humble yourself and ask Him. And you know, there are a lot of people in this world who won't do that. They don't want to humble themselves. They don't feel comfortable humbling themselves at all. And they don't think that they're that bad. And they don't think that they need a Savior. Because they compare themselves to others who are worse off than they are. They say, well, you know, maybe I've done, uh, made a few bad uh, decisions, but I'm not as bad as that person. Or I'm not as bad as this guy. So they feel pretty good about themselves. No, we've got to humble ourselves, admit to God that we are sinners, and have a desire to be restored to God. And it can only come through this decision and this Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the way. He's not one of many ways to God. He is the way, the one and only way. So we here have made that decision. We have humbled ourselves, and we have asked Jesus Christ to be our Savior, and he is our Savior. So we celebrate this. We commemorate this on a regular basis. We remember this. We remember what has been done for us, and our lives have been changed forever. And we're sent to go out with a message of reconciliation to others. You know, by the way that we live, by the conversations we have with other people, by the things that we do, the service that we perform for other people, we live lives that are different from a lot of the world. And it causes people to wonder, well, what is it that's different about you? Why do you act the way that you do? Why do you not do the bad things that so many people do? It opens the door for conversation. And hopefully it leads others to want to know what has been revealed to us, who this Jesus Christ is, that he really did live. He really was a person. And you know that cross that a lot of people wear around their neck? It does have strong significance and meaning because it represents the salvation of the human race. Now it's up to us to, to choose that, to seek that, to pursue it, a relationship with God, to restore it, because a lot has been done on our behalf so that that can happen. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, verse 22. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Not only did John the Baptist recognize Jesus as the Lamb of God, but notice it also goes on to say that, don't forget, that Lamb had to be without defect before it could be sacrificed by the Israelites. And in talking about Jesus, it says here in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, about Jesus, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. So, uh, he was the lamb without blemish. He fulfilled that prophecy and that story to the letter, exactly. So, he is the substitute. He is the one who took our place, just as he took the place of the ancient Israelites and brought about salvation for them, physical salvation. For us, he's brought about spiritual salvation. So that's the story 
of why Jesus had to go through the very terrible week that he went through, ending with his death, his burial, and then later his resurrection. Let's turn finally to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think this is what uh, the Apostle Paul meant when he was uh, encouraging the church at Corinth about taking communion and how to take it in the right way. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. He wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, and you know they were attempting to have communion services, as we're about to have, and they were going about it in the wrong way in so many respects. And he kind of chews them out in verse 17 and goes through several verses here of how not to take the communion service. But then in verse 23, he tells them how to take it properly. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I, w- I would never want to sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So what does he mean to take it in an unworthy manner? Well, he means to take it casually, to take it without thinking about the meaning of it, and with, without thinking of what Jesus Christ had to go through so that we could take of these symbols. His suffering, his passion, his death, his crucifixion. That's what we need to think about. That's what has to be on our mind when we take the communion service. So when we take the bread and the wine, it certainly is a way of saying we believe in God, but we also need to to be able to say we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as our Savior. We understand that by what he went through, he became the substitute for us. And we have to claim him as our personal substitute. Not that Jesus is a substitute for sin for the whole world, but he's a substitute for sin for me. He paid the death penalty for me. Because I admit I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. I need my sins to be taken away. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So when you go back to the communion table and you take the piece of bread and you take the cup, remember, it's for you. It's not just for the world. It's for you personally. And you have claimed that blessing when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. He says in verse 28, a man or woman ought to examine himself or herself before he or she eats bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. He says, this is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, died in other words. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. 
So in a few minutes, we're going to have the opportunity to go back and to kind of share in a ceremony that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper before his death. Of all the things he could possibly do with the apostles, 